And you don't know whether or not that would have happened with or without man? You don't know? Well, you're scientists. You're scientists at no, NOAA and NASA. No, we have, we have NASA. scientists that disagree with that. I'm not denying climate change, but it could very well go back. You know, we're talking about well, over millions of years. Well, that's Welcome to the Got Science Podcast. I'm your host, Colleen McDonald. Well, we're at the two-year mark in the Trump administration. We thought this was a good time to take a look at the state of science and federal scientists. After the interview, Shreya Dervasala is back with another example of sidelining science. As of this podcast's release date of January 29th, 2019, it's been two years and nine days since President Trump took office. That's two years and nine days of his administration ignoring science and scientists. Two years and nine days of climate change denial. And two years and nine days of breaking down our environmental and public health protections in favor of special interests and fossil fuel money. But who's counting? I've been curious about whether our federal scientific enterprise is strong enough to weather each fresh assault and how our federal scientists are hanging in there. So I turned to an expert who also happens to be my colleague. Dr. Gretchen Goldman is the research director for the Center for Science and Democracy at the Union of Concerned Scientists. And she's been watching this administration closely and pushing back against their shady tactics for two years and nine days. In fact, her team just released their second report about science under President Trump, titled The State of Science in the Trump Era, Damage Done, Lessons Learned, and a Path to Progress. I highly recommend that you check it out. What I liked most is that it's not just a summary of all the attacks on science we've seen, but a manual for how to move forward and help the new Congress keep this administration accountable. Gretchen joined me to talk about how the attacks on science have become more sinister since day one of the Trump administration, how she brought her baby along to defend EPA science, and about what's giving her hope these days. Gretchen, thanks for joining me on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Colleen. So your work looks at the intersection of science and policy. You've had almost two years now to observe the Trump administration. Thinking about science, what's the story of these last two years? Well, it depends on how much time you have, but <laughs> there's been uh, a lot that's happened. And I think back to during the, uh, just after the election, when uh, we knew, based on uh, the rhetoric of candidate Trump, what his administration might do. And we, of course, had concerns, given how he had treated science in the campaign. Um, but I don't know that I could have predicted the uh, full-out assault on science that has resulted. Uh, we actually recently uh, put out a paper, a scientific paper that uh, looked at the degree to which the attacks on science under the Trump administration were different from past administrations and found that indeed there were elements of it that uh, were very new and um, more intense than what we've seen in the past. Uh, though, of course, there has always been political interference in science policy. We've seen that under both Democratic and Republican administrations. Uh, but what we're seeing under Trump it really is a, a different beast. Um, and specifically, I think one difference that, that I noticed is that it's been uh, a lot of 
attacks happening in, in broad daylight. Uh, in the past, we've we've observed a lot of uh, issues around science and policy where, you know, there were efforts to uh, hide the malfeasance to try to, you know, edit a scientific document or uh, have a secret meeting with industry that was inappropriate. Uh, but instead, what we're seeing a lot from the Trump administration is is just not following the science, making it clear they're not, not even uh, pretending to be following the appropriate process on things. And uh, it's really been remarkable to see uh, them go to that extent. So a blatant example would be President Trump saying that the science isn't settled on climate change, that those types right. of examples of just saying ludicrous things. Right, exactly. And I think the uh, national climate assessment that just came out is a good example of that in that in the past administration we might have seen a uh, an attempt to try to change the findings to sort of uh, massage the uh, paper itself the the results themselves to emphasize uncertainty in inappropriate ways or, or something like similar but instead under the Trump administration we see they they let the report come out on untouched untampered with um, but then the president just just disparages it out in the open. Mm -hmm. So when a federal agency is making policy decisions, there are several points where science gets considered. Can you walk me through what that looks like in real life, in practice? There's lots of ways that science fits into this policymaking process. Uh, and it's not that every decision needs to be based on science. There's, of course, lots of different policy decisions we might make that have nothing to do with science. We might make things based on our values, based on uh, protecting uh, particular groups of people, even if it doesn't make sense economically. There's lots of different reasons we, we make policy, but there's lots of places in the policymaking process that require you to base information on science or require you to get scientific input. Uh, so examples of this are places where uh, career staff, so people working within the federal government, will develop scientific documents. So scientists working uh, within the EPA, for example, will make scientific documents. Uh, there's external advisory committees, which are composed of scientists, mostly from academic spaces, that inform policymaking processes. These are scientists that just lend their time and expertise to uh, policies, decisions uh, to help with them. Um, and there's also lots of places where public comments uh, occur. So scientists uh, like like me or anyone can uh, weigh in and, and give their opinion on, on a particular policy. And there's also uh, peer review processes throughout the government where um, documents will, will be put out for peer review by scientists external to the government. Uh, and so all of these are places where science intersects with de the decision-making process. The value of having science at all these different junctures is that it allows grounding in evidence for policy decisions. And that without that, we leave a void uh, that could be filled by special interests or, or those who aren't thinking about the public as the primary uh, motivation. And so science provides that crucial role. So what has been the, the biggest unpleasant surprise for you in these last two years? I think the biggest 
surprise has been the destruction for the sake of destruction. You know, we know there's, of course, uh, pressures on decision makers to make decisions that go against the science and go against what's in the public interest. Uh, but we're seeing that uh, this administration in some cases is just just wrecking things and undoing things for no reason. It's not even anything anyone wants. And I think a good example of that's the uh, car emission standards where even the industry, the auto industry, did not want the administration to roll back the standard. Uh, this was a standard that companies had already invested technology into, and it doesn't help anyone to roll it back, and it certainly doesn't help the public health, and yet they did it anyway. So your research has shown that the Trump administration is interfering with science at all of these points. What are the actions they've taken that have undermined science? Well, there's quite a few that we've seen, but I think some that come to mind in particular are a lot of what they've done to advisory committees, um, advisory committees of, of independent scientists that are outside of the government. Uh, they've, uh, in some cases, gutted some of the EPA committees. Uh, they've frozen many others at, at other agencies. Uh, and this is only going to serve to decrease the amount of science that gets into the decision-making process. Uh, we've also seen there there been some hollowing out of agencies. So uh, staff, particularly scientific staff that have left due to buyouts, retirements, uh, hiring freezes, we've seen less people are now at federal agencies to do that work of protecting the public health and safety and the environment. Uh, and that's going to have consequences for people. So your graduate work was on air pollution, and that's been an area where the Trump administration has been very active. Um, how should science be informing air pollution protections, and where is the Trump administration getting it wrong? The Clean Air Act is actually wonderfully written in terms of its separation of science and policy. It allows for independent science, robust science, to inform what policy the decisions are made about uh, air pollution and what levels are safe to breathe. Uh, and yet we're seeing the administration dismantle that process in a couple different places. Uh, that's happened on the advisory committee front, as I've mentioned. Uh, it's also been happening in terms of uh, restricting the science that the EPA can use to look at what the impacts of air pollution on public health are. Uh, and all of that science goes into the administrator of the EPA making a decision about what standard protects public health. This is how it works for ambient air quality standards in this country. And we're seeing the administration uh, make uh, changes that ultimately mean less science feeding into the process, and it makes it easier for them to make a political decision on the standard. It makes it easier for them to set an air pollution standard that does not protect public health with an adequate margin of safety as the Clean Air Act requires. So I, I want to pivot to the actual scientists. So your team surveyed thousands of federal employees at science agencies to find out what the state of science is on the inside. So what did you learn from that survey? 
We learned a lot from federal scientists, and I first want to thank the thousands of scientists that took the time and energy to tell us about their experience as a as a scientist within the Trump administration right now. And we learned uh, largely that a lot of scientists are are working business as usual. They're working hard. They're doing their best work uh, in this environment, uh, despite all of the headlines that we see about attacks on science by the Trump administration. We also saw some censorship of scientists particularly around climate change. Many scientists told us that uh, either they were told not to do climate-related work uh, or that they weren't directly told but had been avoiding climate change-related work uh, for fear of retaliation or for fear of the consequences of doing so. Uh, And we're really worried about that self-censorship and the idea that scientists might be uh, choosing not to talk about politically contentious topics like climate change uh, because that will ultimately mean we won't that information won't reach the public, it won't reach decision makers like it should. Yeah, it feels like there's um, just this creeping rot or something that's kind of that's slowly seeping in and how do you how do you stop that yeah it's very hard to control and and just i mean that's it's important to say that you can uh, of course pivot your focus within uh, the government and within scientific work you know different administrations have different policy priorities and so uh it it makes sense for them to say you know we're really interested in focusing here Uh, but what they cannot do is uh meddle with the science and and uh, change what science said, and they can't stop science that's already being produced. And that's unfortunately a lot of what we're seeing. Gretchen, have have you ever thought about what you would do if you were a scientist right now working in federal government? I think it's a really tough call. I mean, they're in a very different... it's a tough decision, right? It's a, there's a lot of professional and personal consequences if you're to call out the administration or uh, blow the whistle, so to speak. Um, fortunately, now nowadays, there's lots of ways that scientists can uh, get the word out about uh, transgression or anything that they'd like to share externally. We have um, uh, we at UCS have, have uh, ways for scientists to communicate with us. Uh, we have a scientist protection project that allows allows uh, scientists to confidentially speak to legal experts about situations. And uh, there's lots of options they have now to share things. But uh, it's a good question. I'm not sure if I'd be brave enough to blow the whistle. We'll be back in a minute with the second half of our interview. The Got Science podcast is brought to you by the Union of Concerned Scientists. More at gotsciencepodcast.org. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, PRX, SoundCloud, and many more places where you can download podcasts. You can also find me on Twitter at GotScienceUCS. If you'd like to take a look at our report, The State of Science in the Trump Era, Damage Done, Lessons Learned, and a Path to Progress, you can find both the report and a timeline detailing the many attacks on science at ucsusa.org slash scienceundertrump. Now, let's get back to our interview. So over the summer, you testified at a public hearing about science at the EPA, and you had a special guest there with you. What? So what inspired this testimony? I did. I had my infant son. He was only about a month old, and he was uh, strapped to my chest as I gave testimony at the EPA this summer. And uh, I didn't need to be there. I was on parental leave, but I felt like I had to be. This was 
too important of an issue. And frankly, it really matters for his future. Uh, the hearing was about the science that EPA is able to use in its decision making. Uh, and I think a lot about his future when we're talking about all of these issues. Um, we're, we're talking about it in, in the sort of DC uh, policy context, but uh, a lot of these things will ultimately affect him and his future and his ability to uh, live in a world that's uh, free of uh, pollution and uses science to improve uh, the lives of Americans. Uh, I think about it at, at the basic level of, you know, when I was a child, I assumed that the government was there to protect me. And um, I use this silly example of I, I would always ignore those little signs on lawns that say don't don't go here because of uh, we sprayed a pesticide. And I thought, oh, those are just overly cautious. They wouldn't they wouldn't spray something on the lawn if it was dangerous to me. And as a kid, I would ignore that. And uh, we could talk about, you know, what kind of kid that probably made me. But I, but I think the point is that we expect that our government should protect us. That's what we're paying taxes for. There, there are agencies and scientists working across the government to make sure that we are protected from harms. And uh, I want that for my son, and I don't want him to live in a world that doesn't use science to protect people and improve their lives. So are you seeing any bright spots besides your son, who I'm sure is a very bright spot? But in, in what's been going on, is there anything that's giving you sort of hopeful, um, is there anything that's giving you real hope? Yes, uh, aside from baby snuggles, which of course always give me hope, uh, it is, uh, there are some bright spots. I think uh, one of them is, is what one of the main conclusions of the survey was, which is uh, in the government right now, there's an army of scientists continuing to do their job. Uh, and that was really hopeful to see. And I think we, we need to remember that when the administration makes an action, that's not all of the scientists at the EPA doing it. It's uh, a few political appointees or a single political appointee somewhere. And so there's a lot of people behind the scenes that are doing good work, that are continuing to do their job and get science into the hands of decision makers and the public. Uh, and that makes me hopeful. So with all this, the energy that we're seeing around the country, people are getting more involved in politics and in policy, and they're marching for science. They're going to town hall meetings, um, high turnout in the midterm election. How's that being reflected in the scientific community? It's unbelievable. I've been just blown away with the n number of scientists that have stepped up to be engaged in this space. Uh, and when I was uh, a student, I don't think there was nearly as many opportunities to do things in the policy space, and if, even if I had wanted to. And uh, now I, it seems there's so much more that scientists can do and are doing to get engaged on the policy front. Uh, and so I've been very impressed to see just how far that's gone. And that gives me a lot of hope for where we can go. I think the important thing is that we need to be able to sustain that momentum. Uh, because uh, it is important that people stand up for science and engage on science policy under the Trump administration when we're seeing all these attacks. Uh, but it will also be important in the next administration and the one after that, regardless of what party is in power or uh, the degree to which uh, they appear to be following the science. There's always uh, Space and there's always a need for scientists to engage in the policymaking process and inform decision makers. So I hope that uh, 
people that are newly engaged now will will continue that momentum and and do a lot more engagement uh, in the future. Mm-hmm. What are the most effective ways that scientists and supporters of science can make a difference in their community or at the national level? There's a lot they can do. At the local level, I think it's a lot of what is needed is just talking about science and normalizing the idea of scientists talking to the public, talking to decision makers, uh, and sharing what they know. Um, We always hear the statistics about how few people know a scientist, or at least think they know a scientist. Uh, And so I think we need to continue to work on that front and uh, make science more accessible to people. And I think within the scientific community, we need to normalize the idea of being an engaged scientist that talks to the public, talks to decision makers, um, and is uh, engaged in this process. Uh, Historically, many scientists have chosen not to be engaged in the policymaking process. And I think we're seeing less of that stigma now, but we need to maintain that and make sure that uh, scientists are in an environment, whether it's at a university or elsewhere, uh, where they feel they they can take time uh, away from their the lab away from publishing uh, to do outreach to communities or to uh, talk with decision makers and and think about how to inform the policy making process. So uh, I'm hoping we can make some long term changes that will help us continue along this path. Yeah, one thing that I wish there would be more of is conversation around science and the fact that scientists don't just study something and then there's a right or wrong answer. It's yes or no, but it's an exploration and a study. And I think that's really lost in this administration. It seems like you have to have the right answer, which seems completely not scientific at all. Right. Yes. Science is, of course, a a journey. There's uh, a question that we ask and we, we study it and you come out with an answer and that answer, uh, isn't always a yes or no very clear answer. It might be, you know, this sort of policy choice leads to this risk and and that policy choice leads to different risks and uh, and we have to decide what to do. And that's... um, and some of those decisions are our policy decisions, right? Science can't tell us uh, the exact policy that works to address a particular science issue, uh, but it might tell us what those risks are, what are the concerns, what are the uh, impacts that will happen if we choose different policy paths. So I, I think there is um, more that we should do within this administration and beyond to think about how can we better make sure that's communicated. Uh, and, and I think there should be more places where we're separating out the science and the policy decision because uh, sometimes that gets muddied and I think that makes it difficult for people to uh, be able to hold accountable decision makers if it's unclear what's a, a science choice and a policy choice. Mm-hmm. Great. Well, Gretchen, I want to be mindful of your time because I know you have a meeting in a couple of minutes, but thanks for um, sitting down with me. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Colleen. It's time for a short segment we call Sidelining Science, the latest news from an administration that allowed the federal scientific enterprise to wither during the 35-day government shutdown. Ashreya Durvasila recorded this story before federal employees returned to work yesterday. It's a warning of some of the untold costs of a government shutdown, a threat that still looms over the next three weeks. My colleague Juan Declet Barreto posted something interesting on Facebook the other day. Granted, he's been posting a bit more than usual over the last couple of weeks. 
It's not that he's avoiding doing work, he just literally can't. Here's the interesting thing he said, and I quote, Not even in the ballpark of the hardship felt by people who are not collecting a check or receiving critical services, but here's another impact of the shutdown. It's making it very difficult or impossible for me to conduct climate change research at the Union of Concerned Scientists because I can't access NOAA data and websites, end quote. NOAA, of course, is the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, which is closed because of the shutdown, with many of its employees furloughed. Juan is just one of thousands of scientists who are either part of the federal scientific enterprise or who depend on it to do their jobs. At least he can turn his attention to other areas of research, and he's still getting a paycheck. But the work he could be doing, and can't right now, is important, and so is the work of other scientists who are stuck posting on Facebook. The government shutdown that is still dragging on as of this recording is really kicking science in the teeth. For federal scientists, the shutdown means they're on furlough. According to the Washington Post, they can't even check their work emails. In the same Post story about the shutdown in science, Christine McKinty, head of the American Geophysical Union, says, quote, Until funding is secured, Many scientists employed by the U.S. government aren't able to make important observations or analyze data to protect life, property, and ecosystems here at home and abroad, end quote. So not only are thousands of workers not getting paychecks, but their inability to work has tangible consequences to our health and safety. For non-federal scientists, whose work depends on an open, functioning government, they now have huge holes in their data sets, cancel conferences, stalled research, and in some cases, a lack of funding for work they'd been planning. Many scientists affiliated with institutions, such as universities and hospitals, receive grants to do their work from government bodies, such as the National Science Foundation or the National Institute of Food and Agriculture. They can't provide new funding or accept new grant proposals because of the shutdown. So no new work. Finally, and what I find most unfair for scientists, is that this shutdown really affects those at the beginning of their careers. When you're trying to make a name for yourself and staking your reputation on the quality of your research, having holes in your data collection, along with weeks-long gap in your research, could lead to unpublishable results. For many scientists, especially doctoral students and postdoctoral fellows, their work is on a strict timetable and it's not as though they can easily pick it back up once the government goes back to work. And when you can't publish what you've been working on because of these holes, you can't get the jobs you want. The damage to career trajectories for early career scientists could reverberate for years. If you're a scientist who's been affected by the government shutdown, please feel free to reach out to UCS to share your story securely and confidentially at www.ucsusa.org slash science protection. Thank you for hanging in there, and we all hope you can log off Facebook and get back to work ASAP. Well, that's it for this episode of the Got Science podcast. Got Science is made possible by the 130,000 members of UCS and especially our partners for the Earth, the 12,000 supporters who make monthly contributions to Stand Up for Science. Learn more at ucsusa.org 
slash partners. Special thanks to Dr. Gretchen Goldman. Sidelining Science by Shreya Dravasula. Editing by Omari Spears. Music by Brian Middleton. Research and writing by Pamela Worth. Our executive producer is Rich Hayes, and I'm your host, Colleen McDonald. Come talk to us on Twitter at GotScienceUCS. Thanks, and see you next time.